Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, naturopath and technical education manager for Metagenics. In this podcast, we hear from Dr. Kelly Brogan. Kelly is a Manhattan-based holistic women's health psychiatrist, author of the New York Times best-selling book, A Mind of Your Own, and co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. In this podcast, Dr. Brogan discusses her evolution into functional medicine. Whilst practicing as a conventional psychiatrist prescribing psychotropic medications, Dr. Brogan came to a point where she began questioning this method. After recovering from her own health crisis using natural medicine, she made the transition to become a pharmacy-free psychiatrist. Kelly now uses a functional medicine model to assess patients and relies solely on natural interventions to treat mood disorders. Dr. Brogan discusses the shortcomings of the conventional view that mental illness is simply a brain chemical imbalance. She explains how depression is primarily a symptom of a physiological imbalance which clinicians need to uncover. She also critiques some popular testing methods and therapies used in functional medicine to determine their clinical relevance. Let's hear from Kelly. All right, so thanks for joining us, Kelly. Um, so one of the reasons why I asked you to come to the podcast, I think you've got a fascinating story. You've um, made the transition from a real sort of uh, conventional background, um, even professionally and personally. Yes. You know, you would have eaten a conventional, you know, standard American diet and um, were prescribing pharmaceuticals, which is the best practice for psychiatry. And you've made a real transition into you know functional medicine and personally as well now you know by your own admission you're a a diet zealot (laughs) and prescribing lifestyle medicine and all that sort of stuff so um maybe for the australian new zealand audience who aren't so familiar with your journey would you better just sort of touch upon how you've you know where you've come from and where you are now Sure. So, you know, I was raised in, I think, what would best be described, a, you know, sort of blue collar family. Uh, my mom is an Italian immigrant. And as any second generation American knows, there's a ton of emphasis put on, you know, externalized validation of your intelligence, of your, you know, self-worth, of your success. And so I basically, you know, knew that I had to choose to become a doctor or a lawyer and my parents absolutely deferred to authority, you know, whatever the doctor says goes. And so I went on my merry way, you know, I, I, you know, got straight A's only because I would get in a lot of trouble if I didn't. And I decided to become a psychiatrist um, and go to medical school when I was at college in MIT because of the confluence of two factors. Um, one was that I was working a suicide hotline, strangely called nightline while I was at MIT and suicide is a big issue there. A lot of completed suicides. I think there were six while I was there undergrad and, uh, that hotline was supervised by psychiatrists. So I met with a psychiatrist every week to go over the different calls that I had gotten. And that, um, coupled by the fact that I was studying neuroscience as my major, which, you know, interestingly is probably one of the easiest majors at MIT, um, gave me this sort of illusory impression that we have cracked the code on human behavior and that we have, you know, a tried and true way of helping people who are in distress, getting them to treatment that works and is safe. 
And so I was really, you know, I thought I had found my calling. And I went to medical school explicitly to become a psychiatrist. Um, I decided to specialize in women's mental health because I have always been a feminist, you know, seemingly from birth almost. And I have, you know, spent the better part of my life as what I would now call uh, a feminist in her masculine principle. And what I mean by that is that I really had this sort of aggressive, um, you know, I don't know, almost like warrior posture uh, in my feminism. You know, I thought that birth control and elective C-sections and the HPV vaccine were the hallmarks of women's liberation. And so it was from this um, you know, mental context that I really specialized in helping women gain equitable access to psychiatric medication during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Believe it or not, you know, my specialization was in medicating these women, this vulnerable population, um, you know, to the hilt <laughs> because, and this is why I actually continue to have a lot of compassion for my colleagues who haven't seen the light because I thought I was doing something good, you know, for, for women at that stage in my career. So I was pregnant during my fellowship when I was specialized in medicating pregnant women. And I remember sitting with a patient of mine and writing her a prescription for Zoloft and having this, you know, feeling rise up basically this voice that said, I would never want to take this medication as a pregnant woman. And I was like, what? <laughs> who said that? You know, I sort of had this feeling like of dissonance because I had written hundreds and hundreds of these prescriptions for pregnant women. You know, I did it every day. And mindfully, thoughtfully, you know, I sat with them for a two-hour consultation, went over the 25,000 cases in the literature. But nonetheless, something in me felt like there needed to be another way. And I sort of ignored that until I myself was nine months postpartum and I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. I'd never had a health problem before. As you said, I had done nothing but abuse my body up until that point. Um, you know, literally, you know, drinking six cups of coffee, you know, eating candy every single day, eating McDonald's and, you know, never exercising, dyeing my hair black, taking birth control, you name it. Um, I was not you know, prepared for a health problem. It was just not even on my radar that I would ever have to deal with something like that. So I did something totally shocking to, my, to me at this point in review, which was to go to a naturopath. You know, it was so out of character for me to do something like that because we learn in our conventional education that, you know, alternative, quote-unquote, alternative medicine is, you know, sort of a window-dressing that is permitted at best, and at worst is something dangerous, right? That supplements are dangerous and, you know, to consider alternatives before pharmaceuticals is actually a dangerous practice. So this is what we learned. This is what I had parroted. And so for me to go to a naturopath was an act of desperation because I really knew that the only way out for me from what could be a chronic lifelong condition was through something other than what I had learned. 
Um, and so, you know, of course the story begins there. You know, I changed my diet. I began exercising and meditating. I took some supplements and I put into remission a condition I'd never learned was possible to put into remission. And so a lot of red flags were raised for me. You know, I, I said, oh, hold on a minute. I never learned in my decade of Ivy League training that nutrition had anything to do with health. I never learned that chronic conditions could be put into remission, let alone autoimmune diseases. And I certainly, um, you know, never learned that there, there was no role for a pharmaceutical in, in the treatment of my diagnosis. So this, again, as the universe has it, um, was in powerful confluence with my receiving a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, who's an investigative journalist. A colleague of mine gave it to me, and she basically said, you know, you really believe in these medications. You prescribe them all the time. What do you think of this book? And the book essentially argues, I think, um, quite powerfully, that medications, all of them, psychiatric medications from stimulants to benzodiazepines and everything in between, are responsible for the creation of all of the modern psychiatric epidemic illnesses and that the very medications that we are using to resolve what could otherwise be reversible or single episode experiences are perpetuating chronic and disabling illnesses. It's a pretty provocative claim and I was ready to receive that truth because I had already had this experiential shift that brought into question everything I had learned up until that point. It's amazing. So, yeah, from a personal perspective, you then, I suppose, started questioning your prescriptions and, and how did you do that transition, I suppose? And you essentially, I suppose, reviewed all the evidence on, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals and the monoamine model and, I suppose, really uncovered a, a, a new perspective on that. Would you better share that with us? Yeah, so I hit the books, right? And it's funny because I have always had a very intimate relationship with PubMed.gov, um, the national, you know, sort of index of, you know, published research. And for 14 years, every Saturday, I have reviewed my collated search terms. And of course, you only find what you're looking for, right? So I had, you know, I basically said, okay, I'm going to stop looking for what I had been looking for, or at least I'm going to add many other search terms. And so I began doing my own research, specifically filtering non-industry published, uh, rather non-industry funded data. Um, and so I began to look at, okay, so do these meds really work? Are they really safe? And are, is there evidence for quote-unquote alternatives? And what I found essentially rewrote my understanding of quote-unquote mental illness. So one of the most shocking things, I would say there are three shocking things that I learned. The first is that the whole chemical imbalance theory, right? If you ask someone on the street what causes depression, I would bet probably 80% of people would you know, offer you some explanation that has something to do with chemical imbalances, whether it's serotonin or norepinephrine or something in the brain's chemistry that's off, right? And we've been essentially taught this meme through media. So, you know, New Zealand and America are two countries, you know, on the globe that allow for direct-to-consumer advertising. And 
The problem with direct-to-consumer advertising is that you have corporations speaking directly to patients about their health. Those patients go to their doctor, they are statistically more likely to be prescribed exactly what it is they're asking for. Then they have an understanding that is not predicated on science of what is going on in their body that informs the effect of treatment when they are entered into trials as volunteers. And so what you know I uncovered was that in 60 years of data, there is no evidence for a chemical imbalance theory of any mental illness, literally none of them. So the serotonin theory or what's called the monoamine hypothesis, you know, was cooked up as a hypothetical model based on an observation in you know, the 1950s and the pharmaceutical industry ran with it and they ran with it using all sorts of tactics to create a smokescreen of the impression that these medications have effect. And the person who has really decimated the claim that these medications are effective in correcting chemical imbalances is um, a researcher named Irving Kirsch. And he essentially, you know, through some pretty elegant statistics, demonstrated that the impression we have that these medications work is secondary to something called the active placebo effect. So what he proved was basically that in these trials where we are looking at about eight weeks of exposure to, you know, you name it, any antidepressant, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, Paxil, what's happening is that the very same people who have learned through direct-to-consumer advertising about the potential effects of these medications have learned about their side effects. They're reminded of them in the trial, right? So when they're in this trial, they're told, okay, if you're in the treatment arm, you might get dry mouth, headache, you know, diarrhea. Then in week two, when they get dry mouth, headache, and diarrhea, what happens? They say, oh my God, I'm in the treatment group. Yes, like my chemical imbalance is going to be resolved the way I learned on TV. And that's actually what begins to happen. And it's called the active placebo effect. And we think of the placebo effect as being some, you know, almost like being duped or fooled, like it's something, you know, sort of shameful in a way. And the truth is it's the most powerful driver of outcomes in modern medicine, in my opinion, hands down. Whether it's surgery, painkillers, or psychotropics, your belief about what is going to happen drives the outcome. And so... What he demonstrated was when you control for the active placebo effect, what you're really looking at is a placebo versus a supercharged placebo, and any statistical efficacy melts away. So we really lose any evidence that these medications are more effective than simply the belief that they're going to work. So that's pretty provocative. Um, Joanna Moncrief is another, is another psychiatrist, she's a psychiatrist, he's a psychologist, um, who has very much influenced my perceptions, basically taking that data, coupling it with the rest of her research, which again undermines this monoamine hypothesis and its evidence, and what she says is that this is actually a chemical effect so let's stop calling it an antidepressant effect, right? It's a chemical effect, not unlike alcohol or any other known substance that has an effect. Maybe it's an effect that you happen to like. Maybe it's an effect that you hate. 
but it's an effect. And let's not confuse it with the resolution or correction of an underlying imbalance. And this makes a lot of sense because another one of the shocking things that I learned is that psychotropic medication, in my opinion, happens you know, happens to encompass the most habit-forming chemicals on the planet. And so if we think about them the way we think about alcohol, right, we know that alcohol can resolve a lot of quote-unquote symptoms of anxiety, let's say, right? We wouldn't think that if you feel better after two shots of vodka, that that would be because you have an alcohol deficiency or an alcohol imbalance, Right, And we would know that if you decided to drink alcohol every single day to prevent your anxiety, that you probably would get in some trouble like over a couple of years, let alone a couple of decades of exposure to this like quote unquote treatment, right? So she really helps us to reframe our perspective on psychiatric medication as being really no different. And in my practice now, I'm very focused on taking patients um, willingly, you know, off of medication through strategic mindful tapers. And man, has it woken me up to the reality of the severe deficiencies in modern informed consent. Because believe me, when I started those hundreds if not more thousands of patients over my training on medication, I never once said to a single person, think about this because you may never be able to come off this medication, even if you want to, even if you otherwise would be totally ready, willing, and able to do so. So that was another big shocker. And I would say just, you know, to round out my revelations, I would say that the third one is really, you know, um, the very unpredictable nature of the most serious adverse effects that can happen within even a couple of doses of these medications, but specifically the antidepressants, um, which have studied, have been studied to, you know, and identified as um, some of the most violence-inducing medications ever prescribed. And I remember being taught how to dismiss this concern, right? So it's just that people were already thinking about doing these things like harming themselves or harming them other pe harming other people and that taking medication gave them sufficient energy to do it. And, you know, we really were taught how to confront a signal of harm in the literature that suggested pretty unequivocally that these medications can cause people to do things that are totally out of character. Um, and so my subsequent research really led me to understand that there is a pile of evidence, much of which companies like GlaxoSmithKline have put literally billions of dollars into obscuring, into making sure never meets you know, the eyes of the average consumer. The FDA in America has redacted case after case after case so that you don't ever see that it is known uh, to the powers that be that these medications induce a state of what we now know is called akathisia-induced impulsivity that leads you know, every school shooter ever reported every media making case of infanticide, you know, everything from the German wings pilot to Nice and Munich, you know, all of these cases, the first thing that you want to ask is what psych meds were they taking? And I can almost guarantee you in time, you will find out that they were recently started on a med, that their dose was recently changed, or they were too abruptly tapered. So, you know, I can't imagine how you could even 
in a lab, it, it, it creates such a consciousness warping chemical um, that could possibly, you know, drive people to do these incredibly regrettable things. I would never have believed it when I was prescribing. And of course, now I confront it, you know, every day in my office. It's pretty humbling. Wow, that's amazing. There's uh, so many things I'd love to, to dive into there and I could spend an hour on oh, several of those topics. Um, However, we have to sort of move along and for our practitioners, I think it's probably important. One thing that really strikes it to me is this. I think we've adopted this sort of model of monoamines being the, the central um, tenant of, you know, psychiatry and we're trying to manipulate it ourselves. I think whether it's herbs and nutrients and so forth. Um, so you've really sort of moved a, a beyond that and have identified other drivers and I suppose more importantly you, you view depression as really just a sort of a symptom of a, a physiological imbalance so can you I suppose describe how you sort of view mood disorders now? Yeah so you know I then really sort of moved on to what for the past 20 years the research has really been focused on which is called the cytokine theory of depression which is essentially just grouping depression with all the other modern diseases of civilization heart disease, diabetes, autoimmunity, cancer, looking at inflammation as a primary driver. Inflammation, which obviously is just the language that the body uses to express an effort to adapt, right? So this is where this concept of evolutionary mismatch um, is very elucidating because it helps us to understand that depression may very well be simply a natural and even adaptive expression of an effort on the part of the body, mind and spirit actually, to adapt or to send a signal invitation um, to change and adjust an exposure, right? So in this lens, through this lens, depression, you know, can be anything from physiologic um, to psychospiritual, but it really demands an investigation. I tend to focus on physical health as the portal to spiritual transformation. It's something I see over and over again. In fact, my next book will be about this topic. Um, but the, the most common reversible causes of a diagnosis of depression, and by the way, I would include other things like ADHD or anxiety or generalized anxiety, panic attacks, insomnia um, in this rubric. But I would say the most common causes and the things I like to remind practitioners to look at are, are the following. So one would be uh, blood sugar imbalance. So I'm very into dysglycemia. Obviously, the body should never be able to adapt to the amounts of refined sugar that we are consuming here and there and everywhere. It's, it's just absolutely um, abnormal, right? So the body is attempting to remind us that that's the case. And how it does that is through, you know, the symptoms of reactive hypoglycemia. So when you have patients who are hungry all the time, who experience irritability, jitteriness, nausea, headache periodically throughout the day, I have had patients who've been diagnosed with panic attacks, serial throughout the day, which resolve literally in two weeks of a high natural fat diet. Um, this blood sugar instability is not something you'll necessary, necessarily see on routine labs. I mean, you might see a very low fasting glucose, or you might see a high hemoglobin A1C, but it really is clinical in nature um, and very dietarily responsive. 
Another one would be um, thyroid autoimmunity. Obviously, there's some poetry in my personal experience having informed my clinical practice uh, because now I understand that thyroid autoimmunity, everything from Graves' disease to postpartum thyroiditis to Hashimoto's, can masquerade as all manner of psychiatric pathology, everything from postpartum psychosis to ADHD and depression, for example, um, and you know, it's really important to screen with a full battery of labs. So beyond the TSH and free T4 to also look at um, all of the thyroid antibodies, to also look at free T3, maybe even reverse T3 if they happen to already be taking a synthetic T4 preparation but still feeling symptomatic. This is a big one for me um, because I, I just think that poor understanding of endocrine physiology and the nuances of it can really lead people to treat you know, immune and endocrine pathology with SSRIs, it makes no sense, right? You wouldn't want to take a Tylenol for a piece of glass in your foot. It's sort of like that. Um, and then I would say, you know, one of the, the bigger ones, which I think is, you know, probably very familiar to so many of your listeners, is the power of processed wheat and dairy to distort consciousness, mood, and behavior. I mean, I just published on my blog a case in the published literature, um, uh, I called it celiac psychosis, and it's basically about a young woman, 37 years old, um, who who developed, you know, state hospital level, which you know here in America is is pretty severe and and recidivistic uh, psychosis, and a diagnosis of schizophrenia that was completely resolved on a gluten free diet. So, you know, we're not talking about like a health fad here. We're talking about the danger of being treated with these medications I've just warned you about um, for a totally reversible um, diagnosis. And I'm not big into looking for a celiac diagnosis. I just think everyone deserves a trial of a 30-day strict gluten-free diet. Why not? I think even inpatient facilities should be gluten-free by nature, um, by default. So, and then I would say the last one is medications. So in my research on psychiatric medications, I also began to look into the undisclosed side effects of very common medications, everything from painkillers to antibiotics and vaccines, birth control, acid blocking medications, cholesterol medications, statins, right? And I began to find that all of these medications have potential quote-unquote, psychiatric side effects. So if you don't know that, you're not going to connect the dots. You're going to take your acid-blocking medication, you know, for a diet that's not a good complement for you, and then you're going to develop symptoms that are in the depressive spectrum, let's say, and then you're going to be prescribed an antidepressant for, again, what is this, essentially a side effect of of the initial medication itself. So I'm big into investigating those as well. And, you know, all of those are totally reversible. And I would say that they account for the vast majority of the cases that I see. So when I take patients off of uh, psychiatric medications, I only do that after I have reversed the identified root cause because not only then do they have no need for medication, but then all we're really dealing with is helping their body to adjust to the taper process itself. And it's a much easier thing to do, um, to do that in, a, you know, a body that's been healed of its initial, you know, sort of um, pathology. So I would just bear those in mind, I would say. Great. That's fantastic. So we've got dysglycemia, um, thyroid issues, maybe some dietary uh, factor and medications. So uh, one last thing, uh, I think with your... 
you know, your journey, you, you've left no stone unturned, whether that's, mm-hmm. you know, pharmaceutical. But I think one of the features is you've been objective about, you know, exploring functional medicine and, you know, you've probably done your time and gone down many, many rabbit holes yes. looking at you know, potential <laughs> yes, exactly. causes and drivers. There's a couple sort of really hot topics in Australia which can make practitioners very confused and overwhelmed. Yes. Um, I just wouldn't mind, I think you've done done your time in those rabbit holes and wouldn't mind your sort of opinion. Um, so firstly, uh, methylation is a, a huge, huge, uh, interest in Australia and things like, you know, MTHFR, SNPs and so forth and, um, categorizing people in if they're under and over methylation and so yes. forth. What's your sort of view on methylation and do you sort of screen or test for it? Does that come into your, you know, consideration in practice? So it's a great question. Um, I am very, very skeptical of dogma by nature. So, you know, I've I've become this way um, through throughout the course of the trajectory we've just discussed, right? So dogma inside or outside conventional medicine is something I always look at with suspicion. You know, I do not think everybody needs to be supplemented with vitamin D. Uh, I do not think everyone needs to take fish oil. And I do not think that everyone benefits from methylfolate. Methylfolate, I spent a long time researching because I began to witness that I tested every single patient that walked through my door, you know, for eight years. And I only ever had three patients um, in, in those first eight years who did not have a form of the MTHFR mutation. I found that almost a thousand patients, I found that totally astounding, right? Because we have a decent understanding that at least there's an associative correlation between psychiatric illness, cardiac disease, and MTHFR, um, uh, SNPs, right? So I thought, okay, this is interesting. So I started using methylfolate and honestly, I've never in my entire practice, had a miracle case of methylfolate reversing mental illness. I have had um, miracle cases with injected B12. So I know that single nutrients, and specifically in the one carbon cycle, can have a major impact. For whatever reason, this has been my experience, and it began to raise a lot of flags for me about you know, well, hold on a minute. You know, I've done a lot of research into the BRCA gene, for example, and I know that gene variants are not always consistently expressed. I mean, this is the whole point of epigenetics is that our genes are not our destiny, but we sort of seem to forget that when we get into the realm of SNPs. And so I began to sort of like question it. And then I really went back to the literature and I found, you know what? we don't have a lot of data to substantiate the use of methylfolate. This is a nice idea, but it's not data-driven. And anyone who, you know, is responsibly wedded to the scientific literature must know that, right? That this is really an extrapolation of the identification of this variant in many, many different people who struggle with specific pathologies. But we don't really know what to do with with it or that methylfolate is anything other than a good idea. And then the nail in the coffin for me, and this is not to say that I don't use it, methylfolate, it's not to say I don't test, I always do. Mostly because I think it's interesting and because sometimes honestly patients, I don't know, get something out of knowing, right? There's something in that, um, you know, on paper information that's of value to them. Um, But I also had the privilege, and I could talk about this all day and I won't, of uh, working with my now late mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who I think uh, was the most important figure in modern medicine, you know, who 
we're just about to publish a case series of his, um, of over 100 cases of long-term remission of metastatic and terminal cancers and degenerative diseases. And he used nothing but you know, detoxification, primarily coffee enemas, a lot of glandular supplements, and he used one of 10 specific diets for each patient. And I've never seen a clinician match his outcomes. I've never seen his outcomes matched in the medical literature. This man to me, you know, was like a medical messiah. And he prescribed specifically for its effect on the parasympathetic nervous system, folic acid. And you know, I don't care what you say, but I watched these outcomes over and over and over again in his patients, specifically taking synthetic folic acid. And so it helped me um, to really release a lot of my dogmatic attachment to this idea that we had like cracked some really important code, understanding that the only way to make people well was using methylfolate and that it was a dangerous thing to use synthetic folic acid. And he never used it at high doses, but I just think we need to hold our ideas lightly. And that's why I'm very, very committed to these meta-signal interventions, um, you know, things like specific diet um, adherence, things like, you know, I'm a big, I'm very passionate about kundalini yoga. So ancient technologies for, um, you know, easing the stress response, things like movement, things like being outdoors, all the stuff that I would have rolled my eyes at, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. Now I have the science to support it because the science is there. And I also have the clinical outcomes to show it doesn't need to be that complicated as long as the patient is in alliance. And that's why I've come to believe that the patient's orientation, and again, these beliefs about healing are really probably the most important ingredient in like true clinical success. That's fantastic. I love all those upstream factors exactly. that you, you prefer to work on. Unfortunately, I want to drill into one more before we sign off. And um, again, it's a it's a real sort of interest in Australia is um, pyrols mm -hmm. and measuring those and correlating those with mental you know illness. Have you uncovered that stone, and, and what have you found, and what's your sort of take take home on that? Yeah, so I get asked about this. It's so funny. Um, you know, I lectured in Australia this year and also in the UK, and I lecture all over the state, America, you know, all the time. And I never get this question in America, and I, I got inundated with it abroad. Um, I never, you know, assess pyrroles. I know that there are a lot of um, talented clinicians who do and who even predicate their approach on this perspective that, you know, strategic use, even orthomolecular dosing of um, specific, you know, uh, minerals and vitamins like zinc and B6 can be, you know, the, the key to reversal. I, you know, lead with diet. I would say 80% of my outcomes are diet driven. And the reason I think I get those outcomes is because I don't confuse patients with supplements in the first month. I expect 100% compliance with a very simple diet that I outline in my book. And uh, and I also should should just plug here that I have um, I'm about to release September 1st uh, my first online course which we just completed a beta of 
and it's pretty awesome. I'm really excited about it because the outcomes have been better than I ever thought, frankly, possible because I, on some level, wasn't sure if people could do this without, you know, one-on-one -on -one contact. Um, and it's called Vital Mind Reset. And again, I've been shown that with strict commitment to very basic tenets up front, you really don't need to make things this complicated. Um, so, you know, what happens when you adhere to this kind of diet uh, is a tremendous amount of gastrointestinal shifts and healing of the gut-brain axis. So it may very well be that if you don't lead with this, you can intervene with specific nutrients. Um, you know, there's a long history of using high-dose niacin, for example, for another, a number of different psychiatric pathologies. But it may be that none of that is really necessary, and that's been my more um, frequent experience. And I think I rule with a pretty strong iron fist in this realm relative to a lot of my colleagues who are much more like 80-20 and a little more permissive. Well, like you're doing your best. And I believe in commitment. Anyone can choose to commit. You don't need to have special brain capacity. You don't need to have special connections. You don't need a guru. You just need to make a decision, make a choice, and the rest is history. Because I think from a commitment really comes the experience of self-love that is so deficient in so many people who are in this dark night of the soul, right? So anyway, I'm a big, you know, commitment zealot. Um, but I, I think that's a big part of why my food-based outcomes have been pretty robust. Brilliant. So yeah, that's really the a bigger picture and taking it, put it into perspective with those tests and those um, minutiae, I suppose. So uh, Kelly... Tell me about the book and, um, yeah, the, the course. Cool, yeah. So, um, you know, I can, I can probably just um, point you guys in the direction of my website, which is just kellybroganmd.com. I um, am a passionate blogger <laughs> and, um, you know, do my best to synthesize the latest um, data in a context that means something to people. Uh, so I... You know, I do a lot of blogging there, but I have recently published my first book, which was a grassroots um, New York Times bestseller, meaning that it had encountered a total mainstream media blackout. Um, and despite that, you know, the people spoke and it, it landed on the New York Times bestseller list, which was really a triumphant moment because I think that people are really ready for a new story about our mental health. And um, so the book is A Mind of Your Own. And then... You know, I've been working for two and a half years on a companion course, sort of like a deeper dive than the book itself and a bit more hand-holding. It's a 44-day course that steps you through uh, exactly what I do with patients after the first consultation. And it, so far, like I said, the feedback has been super exciting to me, again, because I was a bit skeptical about... Um, you know, how independently this could be driven. But I, you know, there is a Facebook community associated with it that I moderate. And so, you know, that's been a really beautiful element of people coming together, a lot of people coming off of meds um, and embarking on this next chapter. So I, you know, couldn't feel more passionately about the opportunity that is latent within everyone who is ambivalently medicated, um, you know, to really consider a new kind of healing and a new relationship to their own human experience um, that really is, is made available through these really simple steps that I've tried to crystallize in these um, mediums. 
Great. Yeah, I can't recommend highly enough the uh, the website and the blogs and um, the book is well well written and it's great for the consumer, but I think even sort of also for the practitioner. So Kelly, we could speak for hours, but uh, you've been kind enough to donate your time tonight for you. So uh, we'll certainly put all your links on our webpage and I'm sure practitioners in Australia will certainly see you in person over the next few years and um, yeah, certainly can follow you online. So thanks again for your time and I wish you all the best. Awesome. Thank you so much. Total pleasure.